all the different spots you can get pictures taken. Do you see that little bench there in, in the entrance with that background? Maybe you can go sit with some of your friends and get some Christmas pictures taken here. It's just beautiful. Or around the corner, inside the lobby where the lady, our front desk is, there's a little snowman scene. Just lots of little photo ops, so I hope you guys will do that. Well, we're in December already, girls. Can you believe that? I don't even want to say, I don't know for sure, but I don't even want to say how many days we have till Christmas, because it's coming quick, whether we're ready or not, so. Well, last week, didn't Roxy do an outstanding job of teaching us about the Good Shepherd and the importance of listening to his voice and following him? Do you remember what the objective of our enemy, Satan, is? She had us repeat it a few times. The thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Every time I hear that, read that now, I'm going to think of Roxy having us repeat that. That's why it's so important for us to listen to the Good Shepherd's voice and follow closely behind him. And you'll remember that the reason for John's writing this gospel is to show us the deity of Jesus. That Jesus was God in the flesh so that the people would believe him and have eternal life, right? That's the whole purpose that he's written this gospel. Remember back in the Old Testament, the Old Testament when God was sending Moses to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, to let his people go? And Moses asked God, well, when I go to the people and I tell them that God sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name, what am I supposed to tell them? And you remember what God said? He said, I am who I am. So you tell them that I am sent you. That was the name that God had used for himself. And now here in the New Testament, I am was physically standing in front of them. Now in the book of John, there are seven times that Jesus makes an I am statement claiming that name of I am the name of God, for himself. And we've learned about four of them so far. Do you remember what those four things are we've learned so far? Jesus said, I am the bread of life, the only source of life. I am the light of the world, the one who will keep you from stumbling in the darkness of sin and will be your constant guide. He said, I I am the door or the gate of the sheep. The only way of salvation and the only way to enter eternal life with the Father. Others may say that there are other ways to eternal life, but they are thieves and robbers. So by coming to this earth, living a sinless life, and then dying in our place for our sin, Jesus became the only way, the only door that we can enter to come into the kingdom of God. And then Jesus also said, I am the good shepherd who loves and cares for and protects his sheep. And you know what, girls? He has infinite resources to meet any need that we may have, to protect us in any way, to guide us, to care for us. He has infinite resources. And you know what he also did? He willingly laid down his life for his sheep. He's not like the hired man who runs and leaves the sheep unprotected in order to save his own life when the wolves come. 
And this week we're going to hear about one more of these I am statements. Where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who has power over death. And then he raises the dead from the grave to prove it. So, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 11. Before we do that, I think we need to pray and ask him to be our teacher. Father, we are so grateful that we are able to come here each week and to open your word, the word that you have preserved and protected down through all these centuries, so that we can hear directly from you this morning. And we know that you have things you want to reveal to each one of us about yourself. And so, Father, we come and we just ask that you would help us to still our minds, especially this time of the year where we have to-do lists that are running just twice as long as they always do. Help us just set those things aside and to be still and open our ears and open our hearts to hear from you this morning. And Holy Spirit, we know that you are the one who's really our teacher this morning. If you aren't teaching, then these are just going to be words that are being said this morning and they're not going to have any effect. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will be our teacher this morning. Keep us in truth and drive that truth deep into our hearts so that we will be changed women and look more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Death. It's the one sure thing in life we can count on, isn't it? We hate it but we can't avoid it. And we call it something else, like passing away, so that it doesn't sound so bad. But death is bad, isn't it? It's ugly. And even though we are Christians and we know where our loved ones go when they die physically, death still brings unbelievable pain and grief and loss, doesn't it? And as I look out around this room... I know that many of you have experienced this firsthand, haven't you? Now, it's true that people do live longer than they did 50 to 100 years ago. I mean, science has eliminated a lot of the diseases that used to kill a lot of people. But in spite of all this medical progress, the death rate is still exactly the same as what it's always been, 100%. (laughs) Now, you can eat healthy, You can avoid carbs, you can avoid sugar, you can avoid cholesterol. And you can work out and you can jog and do all those healthy things that you're supposed to do. And you'll be the healthiest corpse that ever died. (laughs) Unless Jesus comes back first, of course, you know. Because the death rate is still 100%. In the history of the world, only two people, Enoch and Elijah, have avoided death. But all other human beings that have ever been born have died. Now one of the most sobering and unsettling aspects of death is that we have absolutely no control over it. I mean the reality is that our life could end at any moment. And we don't know when it's going to happen. But here in John chapter 11 we have an eyewitness account 
of the power and the authority of Jesus to reverse that grip of death. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the last of the seven signs or the miracles that John has listed in his gospel that point to Jesus' deity, proving that he has the power over death. So, are you ready to dive in to chapter 11? Let's start by reading verses 1 through 16. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And then he clarifies, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. We're going to talk about that next week. But John is just clarifying which Mary this is. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for, the glory, it's for God's glory so that the, God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister. Now, did you catch that he specifically names Martha? Sometimes Martha gets a bad rap, doesn't she? It's usually always about Mary. But here, he names her by name. He says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day won't stumble, for he sees by this world's light. And when he walks by night, or it's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Now Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. And then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. Now Mary and Martha and Lazarus were really very close friends of Jesus. And John tells us specifically that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, and they loved him. And I'm sure Jesus and his disciples had often visited their home there in Bethany. Uh, Because remember, it's only two miles outside of Jerusalem. It was probably one of the most welcoming havens that Jesus had during his time here on earth. And Lazarus must have been really, really sick for Mary and Martha to send word to Jesus, who was about 20 miles away on the other side of the Jordan at the time. And verses 4 and 5 tell us that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was really sick, he immediately told the disciples, let's go as fast as we can to help Lazarus before he dies. Now, is that what it says? I was just wanting to see if you were still awake. (laughs) No, that's not what it says. That's what we would expect it to say, wouldn't we? I mean, you'd expect your brother's really close friend to come when he heard that your brother was in critical condition, wouldn't you? But instead, when Jesus gets this news about Lazarus, he chooses to stay two extra days where he was. 
Now, can you picture Mary and Martha looking down the road every hour or so, watching for Jesus to come? And he never came. I'm sure they were confused. Wouldn't you have been? And can you also imagine the things the enemy was whispering in their ears as they waited? Jesus doesn't care about you or Lazarus. If he loved you guys or cared at all about you, he'd be here to do something about it. Maybe Jesus isn't who you thought he was. Now, how many of you have heard the enemy whisper things like that in your ear? Yeah. Remember what Satan's objective is? To steal, kill, and destroy you and your faith in Jesus. That's his objective. But not only Mary and Martha were confused, I imagine the disciples were confused too, don't you think? But Jesus didn't just drop everything to go back to Bethany. I'm sure they, like Mary and Martha, had lots of questions running through their minds as well. Maybe they were thinking, if Jesus loved Lazarus so much, why did he allow him to get sick in the first place? And more than that, once he got this news, why is he deliberately waiting to go back? Why isn't he doing something? It seems incredible that Jesus, knowing that his dear friend Lazarus was critically ill, and knowing that Mary and Martha's hearts were breaking and that they needed him there and wanted him there, to the point that they sent a messenger to give him the message, and yet he still deliberately stayed where he was for two days and did nothing. Now Mary and Martha knew that it was dangerous for Jesus to come back to Judea because... Remember, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. They tried to stone him the last time he was there. But couldn't Jesus have simply healed Lazarus from where he was, like he did the nobleman back in chapter 4? Could he have healed Lazarus from where he was? Yeah, he could have. So why didn't he? Now, we're specifically told that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so we have this dichotomy. But he waited two more days. That seems kind of cold and callous, doesn't it? But see, what they didn't don't know was that all of this was part of God's plan. Now, Jesus' plan made no sense by human standards. But all of this was happening for a reason and a purpose. What was that purpose? Why did God allow Lazarus to get sick and die? We'll look back at verse 4. Jesus said this sickness won't end ultimately in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So all of this was happening for the specific reason of glorifying God's Son. Even though Mary and Martha and Lazarus, none of them knew anything at, at all about the reasoning this was happening when they were living through it. But God knew what he wanted to accomplish in and through these events, didn't he? Now, have you ever stopped to think about that? That he has planned a plan for the things that God has allowed into your life as well? See, Jesus' love didn't mean that he'd immediately rush in and fix things for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Or that he would prevent them from having pain. But in his plan, in his love, he was going to do something far greater than that. And the same is true for us, ladies. 
When we find ourselves face-to-face with things that we just don't understand, things that he's allowed to enter our life that we just would rather not have in our life at all, we need to live by faith and not by sight. We need to trust him knowing that nothing can enter our lives without it coming through his loving hand first. Do you guys know that? Is God sovereign? So anything that he that comes into our lives, he's had to give the okay first, right? And so if he's allowed these things to come into our lives, then he's working in it for ultimately to bring glory to himself, but ultimately for our good as well. Now, because there's aspects to the circumstances that God allows in our lives that we can't imagine, and there are possibilities and opportunities in those situations that we can't see, we have to trust him and know that he's working something out that we can't see. See, he sees the big picture, and he sees all of time at once. We only see this little portion of the picture at one specific time and how it affects us, but he sees the entire thing. So God's timing, and especially his delays, might make us think that he's not answering our prayer, or it at least isn't answering the way that we think he should or the way we want to, But God's answers are always the best, and his timing is always right. So Jesus delayed his coming to Bethany for Mary and Martha's sake so that this delay might increase and deepen their faith and and their relationship with him. Now sickness and even death is not a sign that God doesn't love you. Do you hear that this morning? Satan would like to tell you that's the case, but that is not true. The fact that Jesus loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we're going to be sheltered from problems and pains in our, pain in our lives. After all, the father loved the son, didn't he? But he allowed his son to suffer a humiliating and painful death on the cross for a reason. We need to look past our trials and remember that God is motivated by love and has a purpose for everything that he allows to come into our lives. Now, could Jesus have prevented Lazarus from getting sick and dying? He could. But in his wisdom, he chose to do something far better. He didn't prevent these friends from experiencing tremendous grief because it was better for them in the end to witness his power over death. So after waiting for two days, then Jesus says to his disciples, okay, let's go back to Judea. Now the disciples are worried because they know how dangerous it's going to be if they go back to Bethany. Because remember, it's only two miles outside of Jerusalem, and what happened the last time they were there? They tried to stone Jesus to death, right? So the disciples tried to talk Jesus out of it, and they said, Rabbi, the Jews there just tried to stone you to death a few days ago, and you want to go back there? But Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. Okay, now, what are they thinking? They take him literally, right? And so they're thinking, well, if Lazarus is sleeping, that's a good thing. 
he's going to gain his strength because, see, that's what we do when we get sick. We drink lots of water and we get plenty of sleep and then we're going to be fine, right? So I'm sure they're thinking, well, why would we want to leave here where uh, John the Baptist has laid all this groundwork and people are responding to your message and they're believing in you to go back to where the Jews are waiting to kill you? Just let Lazarus get plenty of a rest and he'll be fine. That makes more human sense, doesn't it? God doesn't operate on human sense, ladies. The disciples had completely missed the point. So Jesus stopped their confusion by just bluntly telling them in verses 14 and 15, he said, Lazarus is dead. That's how he has to deal with me sometimes, just blunt, doesn't he? He tells them, Lazarus is dead. And he says, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you may believe. Now do you think that Jesus meant that he was glad that he wasn't there so that Lazarus, his friend, had died? Do you think that's what he meant? No. His point was that raising Lazarus from the dead would do far more to strengthen the disciples' faith than just healing him would have. Jesus knew that this temporary trial would help his disciples to grow in their, to a greater and deeper faith in him. And Jesus sets such a high value on people's faith that he's not going to screen us or prevent us from trials that are going to strengthen our faith. See, when we suffer, we tend to focus on the moment. We want the pain to be over quickly, don't we? We want to feel good and have the problem solved immediately. But see, God's working from a far bigger picture. He uses our pain and our problems to glorify himself and to strengthen our faith. He's far more concerned about our relationship with him than making us comfortable. But look, now look at verse 16. How do we usually remember Thomas? As doubting Thomas, don't we? But look here in verse 16. He was one of the bravest disciples there. He was willing to go back to Jerusalem with Jesus, even if it meant they were all going to die with him. So, they head back to Bethany. And when Jesus arrived just outside of Bethany, Lazarus had already been in the grave, in the tomb, for four days. Now, after that length of time, everybody knew Lazarus was dead, okay? Nobody could claim that he just seemed dead. And remember, because Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem, a large crowd of Jews had come to mourn with Mary and Martha. Evidently, they were very well-known and very popular, and so a large group of Jews had come from Jerusalem to mourn with them. Mourning was a big, big deal back in that day. In fact, some people even had paid people to mourn. Now, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. And verse 21 says that when she saw him, she said, Lord... If you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And you know what? That's the exact same thing that Mary said to him in verse 32. So evidently these two sisters had been talking about that over the last couple of days. That if only Jesus had been here. You know what, ladies? If is a big word, isn't it? And Satan can use those what ifs or those if onlys to drive us crazy. And it's so futile to spend our time and our wheels imagining all the what-if scenarios. 
If only I had done this. If only I hadn't done that. If only God had done what I had asked and answered my prayer. You can almost hear the questions in Mary and Martha's mind, can't you? Where were you, Jesus? Why did you let this happen? If only you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Now, have you ever been disappointed when when God's allowed something very painful into your life? Or when he hasn't answered your prayer the way you expected him to or think that he should have? Have you ever had to wrestle with the questions, why? Why, God, why did you let this happen? I'm sure most all of us in this room have, haven't we? Let's talk about that for just a minute. How do you handle it when God doesn't act in a way that you think he should? And then you're left disappointed and asking, why did you let this happen, God? There are basically, I think, three ways we can respond. First, we can become so disappointed and frustrated with God that we just cut God out of our life. We don't want to have anything to do with God at all anymore. Now, how many of you know people who have done just that? I do. And that won't accomplish anything but make that person bitter and hard and and just miserable, really. Or when we can't reconcile our disappointment with God, with our beliefs, and we can just ignore it. Choose not to think about it at all and just go on with superficial faith, pretending that we're okay. Now that's a shaky way to live, too, because deep down inside we really don't trust that God loves us and that he can take care of us. And boy, Satan will have a field day with us if that's the way we're trying to live. Or the third way is that we come to terms with our disappointment and talk to God about it. I mean, he knows what we're feeling anyway, doesn't he? But we can talk to him about it and let him deepen our faith and trust in him. Now, we may not fully understand all the whys of our circumstance, but we choose to trust him, the one who's in control of all things, the one who loves us and has our best interest at heart, because we know his character. We know what he's really like. Even despite what Satan was whispering in our ears, we choose to trust his heart and his character when we can't see what he's doing. Ironically, my sister happened to send this morning a text to our other sister-in-law who's having surgery this morning, and I'd just like to read what she texted because I thought this fit in perfectly. It's entitled, it's by Ingram Lotz, and this little devotion's called Start Trusting. And it says, do not let your heart be troubled is a command you and I are to obey. Deliberately calming ourselves is a choice that we are to make in the face of shocking setbacks, catastrophic circumstances, abrupt accidents, irritating interruptions, devastating dissensions, agonizing addiction, frequent failures, all of these things that cause us to be terrified of the consequences and repercussions. In the midst of the swirling fog of fear, Jesus commands, stop it. Now, how in the world do you possibly obey a command that involves so much of our emotional feelings? 
Our obedience begins with a choice to stop being afraid, followed by a decision to start trusting God. And that's what he calls us to do, ladies. That's how he calls us to respond to him. So the next time that you're tempted to say, if only God had done this or that, remember that God is bigger than your circumstance or your problems. He's working even when you can't see him. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart, his character. But see, when you're in the middle of it, that's hard to do, isn't it? So here's Martha. She's brokenhearted. Now, there was no question in her mind that Jesus could have healed her brother when he was sick because she, he had done that all through his um, ministry and his, on earth. He had healed lots of people before, right? So she knew that Jesus could have healed her brother. But instead of being there and doing that, Jesus hadn't come in time. It was too late. So now she doesn't seem to believe or even consider that Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. And so look at what Jesus tells her. He said, your brother will rise again. And what does she say? She says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. See, she's thinking of resurrection and life as something way down the road, way out there somewhere. And isn't that like us, ladies? We think of it as something way out there that we can't really put our finger on, can't really see. But look at what Jesus says to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, I will be. What did he say? I am present, the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this, Martha? The one who is the resurrection and the life was standing right in front of her, full of power and ready to act. So basically he's telling Martha, if you believe that your brother is going to rise again in the future, who do you think is going to raise him then? The resurrection in the last day will be by my power. So don't you believe it's just as easy for for me to raise him right now as it will be to raise him then? Now only God could say truths like that, couldn't he? So Jesus boldly challenged Martha to trust that he was the source, source of eternal life in the here and the now, not just in the future. And so he asks her, do you believe this? He didn't ask, do you understand this? He said, do you believe this? Do you trust me enough to believe this? See, Jesus is calling her to personally believe that he alone was the source of resurrection power and life. Not only in the future, but right now, in her need right then. Now look at her response in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord. I believe you are who you are, the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. So see, she declares three vital truths about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and that he was the deliverer 
sent from heaven into the world. Even in her deepest pain, she puts her full trust in Jesus and says, yes, Lord, I believe. Now remember, she didn't know about the cross yet because Jesus hadn't been crucified. She didn't know that he, about him rising from the dead because it hadn't happened yet. But she believed everything that had been revealed to her up to that point. Even in her deepest pain, Martha believed. Now, we often remember Martha as being the one that was too busy to sit down and listen to Jesus at his feet, right? That's how we remember Martha. But do you see here? She was a woman of deep, deep faith. Well, after they had this conversation, she went back and she pulled Mary aside from the crowd and she told her that Jesus was there and was asking for her. And so Mary quickly got up and went to Jesus. Now, those who were there mourning with her, when they saw her get up real quick, they, what'd they think? They thought she was going out to the tomb to grieve some more. And so they get up and they follow her um, to where she was going. See, they don't realize it yet, but God is setting them up to be eyewitnesses to this miracle too. Now, when Mary got to Jesus, she said the same thing that Martha had said earlier. Lord, if only you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And then she broke down in tears. Now Jesus saw her tears. And he felt their pain. Of their broken hearts. And what did he do? He cried with them, didn't he? You know, sometimes we're told that if we really believe that our family and friends were going to rise again. Or that they're um, safe in heaven and happy in heaven now that we shouldn't cry. Well, why not? Jesus cried, didn't he? So It's okay to cry, because we're hurting. See, the Greeks believed that their gods had no emotions and no sympathy for humans. They thought that the gods had no ability to feel pain, and therefore had no ability to feel emotion and no ability to care. That is not the God of the Bible. He actually came down to this earth and experienced firsthand the pain that we experience. So when we hurt, God hurts. Jesus felt every pain. Not only his own pain at losing a friend. Not only the pain of Mary and Martha of losing their brother. It was more than that. See, the word used here for deeply moved has the connotation of a horse snorting in anger and indignation. So Jesus is not just saddened by the grief of losing a friend or saddened by Mary and Martha's broken hearts. He saw the pain of every death that every human family on this planet will face. He's able to see the deadly effects of sin in a fallen world and to see the havoc that Satan is wreaking with death. He sees the reality that every family is going to suffer the loss of people that they love. That this is what sin has done, not just to Mary and Martha and this family at this time, but what he's going to do to every family throughout history. He feels all of that. And so he looks at the tomb where they've laid Lazarus, and he is outraged at death. And he says, take away the stone. Now, can you imagine what people are thinking? 
thinking, he is crazy. What is he doing? See, remember, they did not do embalming back in, in those days. And in that hot climate, after four days, that body would have begun to decay by that time. And the smell would probably have been strong enough to knock the entire crowd over. Have you ever smelt death? Now, I'm not talking about a little dead mouse or something that we've all smelt. I had never smelt, and I still have not smelt death like I have. Um, My son and I went on a safari a few years ago, and we came upon a leopard that had killed an antelope that was eating it, had been eating it for several days. I am telling you, a half a mile out before we could even see this, there's a smell I can't even describe to you, the smell of death. Now, Martha evidently assumed that Jesus maybe wanted to take one last look at the body of his friend. I mean, she didn't know. But she was afraid of what rolling that stone away might be doing to her heart. I mean, she must have been horrified at the thought of seeing and smelling her much-beloved brother's body or having people see him decaying like that. See, in her mind, it was too late for Jesus to do anything for Lazarus. Death had brought a sense of despair and hopelessness and finality. See, the situation was hopeless in her mind. So she said, Lord, we don't, we don't want to roll away the stone. And Jesus reminds her to put her hope and trust in him. You see what he says? He said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? And so in her faith and out of obedience... She gave her consent and let them roll the stone away. And then Jesus prayed out loud, it says. Now most of us would have been holding our noses and covering our mouths, keeping our mouths shut, but not Jesus. He prayed out loud so that the people would hear him and know the source of the miracle that he was about to perform. And then he did the unthinkable. See, remember, he's intruding on the enemy's turf. He's standing in Satan's territory at a tomb full of death. And he cries out in a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come out. Now, can you imagine Mary and Martha standing there? Can you imagine all the crowd? As they're standing there looking into that dark tomb, thinking, what is this guy doing? And then they see the dead man come out with the linen strips still wrapped around him and the the death cloth over his face. His decaying body full of life and restored. See, Jesus proved that he is the resurrection and life by raising Lazarus from the dead. And you know what? If he hadn't specifically called Lazarus by name, He might have emptied all the graves that were there. And by the way, one day in the future, that's exactly what he's going to do. See, raising of Lazarus was a preview of the power and authority over death that he's going to display when he raises all dead people on the last day. But can you imagine their shock and their amazement as Lazarus comes shuffling out or Or maybe he's hopping. I I don't know how he gets out. He can't walk very well. 
But I imagine they look at Lazarus standing there in the entrance of that tomb, totally stunned. And they look back at Jesus. And then Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. They physically touched the miracle that was standing there as they unwrapped those grave clothes. Now one thing I want to point out was that Lazarus was restored to his mortal body that would one day die again. But in just a couple of weeks from then, Jesus would rise from the dead and he would leave his grave clothes in the tomb because he rose with a glorified body. He's never going to need those grave clothes again. He's never going to die again. He conquered death once and for all. And because of his resurrection, all believers, including Lazarus and including you and me, ladies, will one day receive a glorified body too. And so he tells them, take off the grave clothes. Let him go. And with that, John ends the account of the raising of Lazarus. He doesn't describe Lazarus' reunion with Mary and Martha or the stunned reactions that the people of the crowd had. We don't know anything about the conversations that Lazarus had after this. You know, I find it very interesting that Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say anything that Lazarus said. Do you find that interesting? We have no other information. And you can imagine the questions that people have. Lazarus, where were you? What was it like to be dead and then raised to life again? I mean, we'd have all these questions, wouldn't we? But we're given no other information in the Bible. Now, why do you think that is? See, because this wasn't about Lazarus. And it wasn't about our curiosity about death or life after death. What was this about? What was the purpose of this? Look back to verse 4. It says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That was the purpose of all of this. The purpose was to bring glory to God. To God in the flesh, who was standing right there, once again proving that He is who He claimed to be. Remember God's, or John's purpose in writing this gospel. Look back at John 20 31, we've been talking about it all year. These are written, these miracles that I'm listing, this is the seventh one, these are written, written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the reason John is writing this gospel. Now, seeing a dead man brought to life again ought to make, be enough to make anybody believe in Jesus, wouldn't you think? But once again, we see there are some who believed and others who don't. All through this gospel of John, we've seen this. Jesus claimed to be God, and that forced people to have to make a decision. And the same is true today. There are only two possible responses, girls. You either believe or you don't believe. He said he was God. And then he demonstrated the truth of that claim over and over and over again. And so you have two choices 
You can either believe or you can choose not to believe. When he said he was God, he was either either telling the truth or he was lying. And there's plenty of evidence that what Jesus claimed is true. So you either believe it or you don't. There's no third option. There's no middle ground there. But see, no matter what Jesus did, no matter what he said, no matter how undeniable the evidence of his miracles, the religious leaders refused to believe. They hated him. And raising Lazarus was the last straw. See, they couldn't deny his miracles anymore. Lazarus was living, standing there, living proof of his miracle. And remember, Bethany, where this took place, was just two miles from Jerusalem. And it was on the road from Jericho. Remember, we're just a few weeks outside of Passover. So all these people are coming to Jerusalem on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. And so this road that went right through Bethany was literally filled with people coming to the Passover. And so everybody coming that way, guess what they heard about? The raising of Lazarus. I mean, the resurrection of Lazarus was so monumental and so well known that it threw these religious leaders into a panic. And they said, we can't allow this to go on or everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come and we're going to lose our power and our prestige and our position. And we've got to stop him or we're going to lose it all, guys. See, the religious leaders weren't seeking after truth. They were seeking for ways to protect their own interests. So they decided that Jesus had to be eliminated once and for all. And Caiaphas uh, rationalized that it's better for Jesus to die rather than to lose the nation of Israel. He said, if we kill Jesus, we'll save our nation and our positions. Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying at the time. I mean, he meant one thing. But God meant something different. God ordered every word that Caiaphas spoke and gave it a prophetic meaning. Yes, one man, Jesus, would be sacrificed to save many. Not just the nation of Israel, but save all of those who would put their faith in him. Now, the religious leaders thought they were in control of the situation. But it was God who was working out his predetermined plan. Every single detail, no matter who was doing it, or for what reason, God used it for his purposes. See, the religious leaders had been trying to get rid of Jesus for a while. They've tried to stone him, I think, two or three times now. And then they originally wanted to wait until after Passover was done and after the crowds died down to kill Jesus. But see, now their hand was being forced. And they couldn't wait any longer. See, God's plan was for Jesus to be killed as the sacrificial lamb of God on Friday at Passover. Now, the religious leaders didn't know this, of course. But see, they're not operating on their timetable. They're operating on God's timetable. Now, verse 54 shows us that Jesus was in complete control of the situation. And he's not going to allow them to take him before the appointed time in God's plan. So, he took his disciples to Ephraim for a few days before returning to Jerusalem one final time for the Passover where he would be betrayed and arrested 
and crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The stage has been set for the greatest event in history. And we'll see how that's going to unfold in our lessons over the next few weeks. So, what does all this have to do with us today, ladies? Well, the raising of Lazarus, the seventh and last of the miraculous signs John listed in his gospel, once again offers the proof that Jesus isn't just Lord of the world, this world. He's the Lord of the next life as well. He's not just Lord of tomorrow, but he is also the Lord of today. It proves that he is God, the great I am. He's the bread of life, the only source of life. He's the light of the world, the one who will keep you from stumbling in the darkness of sin and who will be your guide. He's the gate for the sheep, the only way to salvation and eternal life. He's the good shepherd who loves you and cares for you and will protect you. And he has infinite resources to meet anything that you might need. He's the resurrection and the life, the one who has the power over death and raises the dead from the grave. Jesus is, I am, the God of now, ready to be whatever you need him to be in the moment that you need him right now. Nobody knows you more deeply and fully than Jesus does. And no one offers you more help that's form-fitted for your deepest needs in life. He knows and will provide exactly what you need when you need it. The question is, do you believe this? Do you really believe that? See, the raising of Lazarus is also a foreshadow of the cross, where Jesus will go head-to-head with death again... And this time, once and for all. So our hope isn't in having the answers to the whys in life or the whys of our circumstances. It's in knowing that Jesus has the final say. That he has the final victory. So like Mary and Martha, are you sometimes confused by what God allows in your life? Will you choose to believe that he loves you? Just like he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And that he has your life in his hands. And that he knows what he's doing in your life. Even though you may not understand it. Do you believe that? And trust him in it? See, when we leave here today, we're all going to go back and face problems this week. We face them in our homes and in our jobs and in our personal lives. But remember, Jesus is right where you are. He knows how to handle the situation that you're in. He knows how to lead you through it. And even if necessary, he can raise the dead to change it. He can raise a dead marriage back to life again. He can restore a dead relationship with a wayward child. He can do anything, ladies. So we need to place our hope and our trust in him, not on the solution to our circumstances, but on trusting him with those circumstances and in those circumstances 
knowing that he loves us and he's working in these things for his glory and ultimately our good and deepening our faith. You know, the circumstances that you find yourself in today can be as far gone and as far dead as dead as Lazarus was. And you may think there's absolutely no hope. So Jesus asks you, will you trust me? Will you believe in me? Even in your circumstances, even now, when you think there's no hope. And if Jesus doesn't see fit to change your circumstances, does that mean he doesn't love you? Or does that mean he doesn't have the power to change it? Now, come on, ladies. If Jesus had left, saw fit, and left Lazarus dead, would that have shown that he didn't have the power to raise him to life? Or that he didn't care? No. There were reasons behind Jesus doing what he did. And the same is true for us. For you and me in our circumstances. Now, sooner or later, he will remove the stone and reveal his purposes in our circumstances and show his glory in them. But until then, he asks us to choose to trust him with it and believe that he's at work, even though we may not see his hand. Any trial that a believer faces can ultimately bring glory to God because God can bring good out of any bad situation. So let me ask you a question. How do you view your problems? Do you see them as something you just have to grit your teeth and get through? Or do you see your problems as opportunities for God to glorify himself and to deepen your faith and trust in him? See, how we respond makes all the difference. It won't make it easier But trusting God in our trials can deepen our faith and allow him to reveal his glory to us. And not only to us, ladies, but to those who are watching us go through these things. So finally, as we close this morning, I want to remind you that one day you and I are going to die. And you know what? We're not in charge of it, girls. We don't know when that's going to happen. So we better be ready when it does. Jesus will raise every single human being from the dead to live forever, ever. Either in heaven with him or in hell apart from him. There are only two possible places after this life. One without God, living with the horrors of remorse and in punishment. Or one living with God, enjoying life full of blessing and reward. And there's only one way to enter heaven, and that is by believing in Jesus. Again, that's why God, or John wrote this gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have eternal life. So the question is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he's the son of God and the savior of the world? Do you believe and receive him as your savior? See, if you don't believe, it's not because there's a lack of evidence. The evidence is massive. You don't believe 
because you've chosen to harden your heart and refuse to believe. Now, Jesus has done everything in his power to open the way for you to come to him and to have eternal life. But the choice is yours to either believe and receive or not. Now, if you choose and want to believe it, you can do that right now where you're sitting in your seat. Let's all just bow our heads for a moment. But you can talk to Jesus right where you're sitting in the quietness of your heart. And you can simply say something like this. Jesus, I do believe that you are who you say you are. The Son of God who came to this earth to die on the cross in my place. And then rose again so that I can receive forgiveness of my sin and have eternal life. So right now, I choose to believe in you and receive it. I choose to stop going my own way and living life simply to satisfy my own wants and desires, and instead I choose to give my life to you as Lord of my life. Will you show me and help me to live the way you would have me to live so that my life might bring you glory? And if you mean it, he will do that. And Father, we're so thankful that you love us just like you loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. What a privilege it's been to be in Bethany today and experience the raising of Lazarus and end up where we always end up in this gospel accounts, facing the decision and the choice that we all have to make for ourselves to believe or not to believe. So I pray that you'll continue to work in the minds and hearts here this morning. And if there is one person who still isn't sure where they stand, Holy Spirit, will you make these claims of Jesus and the evidence in your word come alive so vividly that today they will make a choice to believe and receive you? Would you give them the desire to open the door of their life to you, their Savior? and the only one who can give life to dead sinners. And Lord, we thank you for what you've accomplished here today. You promised that your word never returns void, but that it always accomplishes the purpose that you give, have intended. So would you continue to take your truth and pour it into us, and then have it pour out of us and use us for your glory. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, the resurrection and the life, that we ask these things. Amen. Thanks, ladies. We'll see you next week.